Good morning to you all. It's a delight to be back here, and I'm glad that Pastor Mark and the elders have given me a second chance to come back and redeem myself. But it is a privilege to be here. Mark is a good friend, and I'm delighted to come into contact with you all and make friends here in this new place as well. Before we look into God's Word, shall we bow our heads in a word of prayer? Our Father, on this Father's Day, where you are the real Father of us all, we are privileged to be your children. And as we come before you in worship, and as we open the Scriptures, we ask for your Holy Spirit's illumination of its truths into our lives, and of his strength into our lives as well, that we may learn and understand and obey for the glory of God and for the furtherance of your Son's kingdom. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Fred had been a religious man who was in hospital and now near death. So Fred's family called his, their pastor to stand with them in, this, in these last few hours. And as the pastor was standing by the bed chatting, old Fred's condition appeared to deteriorate rapidly and he motioned frantically for something to write on. The pastor lovingly handed him a pen and a piece of paper and Fred used his last bit of energy to scribble a note and then he died. The pastor thought it best not to look at the note right there and then and there so he placed it in his jacket pocket. Several days later at the memorial service, as he was finishing up his sermon, he realized that he was wearing the same jacket that he had been wearing while at Fred's bedside and so he said, you know, Fred handed me a note just before he died. I haven't looked at it yet, but knowing Fred, I'm sure there's a word of inspiration in there for us all. And so he took the note out and read, Hey, you're standing on my oxygen tube. <laughs> That's what we think, usually think all our leaders are like. Those who stand on our oxygen tubes. Not at Faith Bible Church, of course. In the book of Judges, where we are going to land this morning, that's exactly how you see the leaders of God's people, those who stand on others' oxygen tubes. We're going to look at one of them today. Judges almost entirely deals with the misdeeds of the leaders of God's people, each one worse than the one that preceded. This book is entirely negative, begins bleakly, continues darkly, ends horribly. That's what happens when God's leaders fail. So you might as well be asking, well, what's in it for us? You see, all of us are God's leaders. All of us, in some arena, in some fashion, to some degree, whether at home, in the office, in the school, in the marketplace, in the playground, God has placed us all as leaders in some form or fashion. And especially today on Father's Day, what we will learn from this failed judge, Ehud, in chapter 3 of Judges, will teach us all, fathers and the rest of us, how to be better leaders. So here we go, Ehud. There's a handout in your bulletin that contains all the texts that I will be dealing with this morning. So if you follow along, that will be sufficient. And if you fill in the blanks for your amusement. So let's go. Judges chapter 3 verse 12. Now the sons of Israel continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord. 
So the Lord hardened Eglon, that's the enemy king, the king of Moab against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he, Eglon, gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and, the, and Amalek, more enemies of Israel, and he went and defeated Israel. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. This is how every cycle of every judge begins. It starts with disobedience, number one. And then the enemy king comes over and defeats Israel. And as with every cycle, the Israelites then under defeat cry out to God. Verse 15. But when the sons of Israel cried out to God, and again, as in every cycle, the Lord, when he hears his people cry, raises up a deliverer, judge, to rescue them from oppression. The Lord raised up, verse 15, for a, a, a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And as in every cycle, the deliverer, judge, fights the oppressor and rescues Israel. So let's jump to the end and see that in verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. But wait, we just skipped over the bulk of the story between verses 16 and 29. 13 verses added in there that really have no parallel in any of the other judge stories. What happens in those 13 verses? Why were they included? You might already know the story. There's a lot of suspense, a lot of intrigue, a lot of tension. And of course, what good would a story be without spilling guts and gushing gore and potty humor? And you have all of that here. I can tell that you're now interested. Okay, good. Verse 12. Now the sons of, the sons of Israel continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord hardened Eglon, the enemy king, the king of Moab, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. We are told twice that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not a good sign. And God is hardening the king, enemy king, against Israel. And that doesn't sound good at all. Verse 13. And he, that's the enemy king, Eglon, gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek. And he went and defeated Israel. Bad news for the Israelites. But as I mentioned before, as in every other story, God is a pushover. He has so much mercy. And when the people cry out to him, he raises up a deliverer. Verse 15, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. But I want us to notice this. While God is certainly merciful in raising up a deliverer, for the rest of the story, God is not at all involved with the goings-on. He is pretty much absent and only shows up at the very end in verse 28 where Ehud exhorts his troops to go fight the enemies. Otherwise, there isn't any sign of God in the story. That sounds suspicious. In the case of the previous judge, the one before Ehud, his name was Othniel, it was God who had actually defeated the enemy king. Verse 10 of chapter 3, when he, that's Othniel, went out to war, the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, that's the enemy king, into his hand. It was God who had done the defeating, but in the story of Ehud, God is almost completely absent from Israel's victory. So right at the start of the story, right at the beginning of this passage, we get a sense that something is not all right. And I want us to look again at verse 15, the description of this judge that has been raised by God. 
Ehud the son of Gera, and notice the next few words, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. This is a strange description, especially if you read it in the Hebrew. Because Benjaminite literally means in the Hebrew, son of the right hand. But the son of the right hand turns out to be a left-handed man. Which literally in the Hebrew is bound in the right hand, i.e. you're left-handed. So the son of the right hand is bound in the right hand, he's left-handed. And so right away we get the sense that Ehud is not all right. He is not what he appears to be. He is not what he is supposed to be. A son of the right hand who is bound in his right hand, i.e. he is left-handed. And in many Eastern cultures, even today, the left hand is associated with impurity and corruption and evil and weakness. Eating with the left hand is considered to be very impolite. So also is accepting a gift with the left hand. You don't do those things that's looked down upon. In any case, 315 depicts Ehud as the son of the right hand who is bound in the right hand, as a leader who has a strange sort of whiff about him. And look at what he does. Verse 16, Ehud made for himself a sword that had two edges, a cubit in length, and he wore it on his, he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He's making his plans to assassinate the enemy king, but he makes it for himself. Ehud made for himself. He commences his plan to assassinate the enemy king, but it's all for himself. No God involved. He doesn't ask God for advice. He doesn't see God for help. He doesn't hear any command from God. God is completely excluded. And in the light of God's invisibility throughout the rest of the story, this again raises suspicions about this leader Ehud. What's with him? Verse 15 again. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him, Ehud, to Eglon, the enemy king of Moab. Ehud made for himself a sword which had two edges, and I want you to remember that, two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh, he was left-handed, so he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And in the interest of time, let me summarize this a bit. Ehud presents Israel's tribute to the enemy king leaves the palace, goes for a bit and then returns and tells the king 19 and 20 I have a secret message for you O king I have a message from God for you. You know what's interesting here? The Hebrew word for message, dabar also means thing dabar means both message and thing so Ehud might as well be saying I have a secret thing for you, a thing from God for you. Eglon the king expects some kind of message or oracle and Ehud gives him a thing, the two-edged sword we saw in 3.16. Ehud the double-mouthed deceiver. And get this, in Hebrew the word translated edge in 3.16 is actually mouth. So the thing that Ehud had for Eglon, the two-edged sword, is actually a two-mouthed sword. In other words, the double-mouthed guy gives the king a double-mouthed sword. Intentional deception and killing. 
the undercurrent of a deceptive plot is detected at the very commencement of the story with a very neat structure that I call a sandwich structure. You have tribute, the slice of bread in 3.15 and again in 3.17 and I have circled them both. But in between you have the sword in 3.16, sandwiched and hidden. The double-mouthed sword is concealed by the tribute offered by the double-mouthed guy, Ehud. So number two is deception. Deception. If you've been a teacher in a college or elsewhere, you might have noticed that over the years there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. Guess which relative often, most often dies? Grandma. Grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm exam, 19 times more likely to die before a final. I'm not making this up. Mike Adams, a professor at Eastern Connecticut State University, has done research on this. And what's worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well are at even higher risk. <laughs> students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. So it turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among our senior citizens is their grandchildren's GPA. The moral of all this is that if you are a grandparent, do not let your grandchildren go to college. It will kill you, especially if he or she is intellectually challenged. How did I get onto that? Oh yeah, deception. It's, it's everywhere. Deception is everywhere, especially, especially among our leaders. But I'll make the point in a little bit that we are not exempt from that either. I'll come back to that, but for now, let, let's just go on with the story. 20 through 22 and then 24. Ehud came into him, came into the king, while he was sitting in, alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, thrust it into Eglon's belly. The handle also came in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the sword out of the belly and the refuse went out of the opening. See, I promised you there would be guts and gore. When Ehud went out, his, that is Eglon, servants came in and looked and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked and because they could smell something, they said, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. They think while Ehud escapes, they think the king is taking a toilet break. So they dilly-dally, verse 25, they waited until they became anxious. And behold, he did not open the doors of the rose chamber. So they therefore took the key and opened them. Behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. And by then Ehud is far away. He has assassinated the king, enemy king, and escaped. Mission accomplished. Of course, all of this could be interpreted positively as God's sovereign provision that enabled Ehud's ruses and deceptions and tricks to succeed. But again, the absence of any mention of God in all of these proceedings is a strong hint that the narrator does not approve of what Ehud is doing. In fact, Ehud does not fare well at all in the narrator's reckoning and that deprecation is expressed in some very clever wordplays. Look at that now. Hold your noses, by the way. This is going to smell bad. 
See those underlined verbs in verse 20, 22, and 24. Look at A and B first. Ehud comes in, the dagger comes in. Same verb. Ehud and the dagger. Of course, that makes sense. Ehud is being equated with the dagger that he so meticulously crafted to kill Eglon. Ehud comes in, dagger comes in. Ehud and the dagger. But now look at C and D. Refuse goes out and Ehud goes out. Ehud and excrement. Ehud, folks, is now being paralleled with stools. Tells you what the narrator thinks of Ehud. The writer is deliberately connecting the exit of Ehud and the exit of feces. Ehud, according to the narrator, is just a piece of... I don't want to go there in the middle of a worship service. The narrator is subtly telling us what he thinks of Ehud and his crafty tactics. In two words, Ehud stinks. We stink too. We stink before God every time we deceive and cheat. We stink every time we show a lack of integrity. 41% of men in the last 12 months have either watched an X-rated movie, visited a club with scantily clad dancers, or purchased or watched explicit sexually explicit books, magazines, internet articles. 16% of women have done the same things. That's almost 30% of the population, one in three. One in every five Americans have solicited prostitutes. One in every five Americans has a sexually transmitted disease other than HIV AIDS. Over a million births in 2012 were outside of marriage. A million. One third of employees steal from their employers, which is the biggest loss that retailers suffer. And last year that amounted to 44 billion, with a B, billion dollars employee theft. At least 50% of all resumes are estimated to be falsified. Only a third of all software being used is supposedly legally acquired, etc., etc., etc. What about us? What would our Google searches and our online history tell others about us? What is our integrity like? Whether you like it or not, as a child of God, you and I are leaders. That is to say, influencers whether it be at home, in the office, in the school, in the marketplace. That may be influence over one person, or a hundred, or a thousand. That's immaterial. The fact is that you and I are leaders in whatever sphere God has placed each one of us. And our first calling as leaders is to demonstrate integrity in our lives. This is the primary way we leaders influence others, influence society, influence a city, a state, a nation, and the world by leading with integrity. And it doesn't start with our national leaders. Leadership God's way starts with us. We need, to be, we need to quit worrying about the president and the Congress and all that stuff. Instead focus on our calling to be the kind of leaders God wants us to be in the kind of places God has placed us to be.
leading with integrity. Ehud didn't. He stank. Yet even though Ehud's devious behavior is not appreciated by God, God, as I mentioned earlier, is merciful and gives Ehud and Israel success in the assassination and in the subsequent battle. Let's look at that and just for a completion, 27, 29, and 30. Ehud blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, so Moab was subdued under the day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Remember that this is only the second judge in the series of judges in the book of Judges. So Ehud is not all that bad, but he has started the slippery slide downhill. And God is merciful. He gives his people success. But nonetheless, there is an overall strong sense in the story that the deception practiced by Ehud is not sanctioned by God. Here's another indication that God does not appreciate Ehud's activities. Notice how the assassination story began, verse 18 and 19. But when he, Ehud, had finished, tribute, finished presenting the tribute, that he, Eglon, sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself, Ehud, turned back from the idols that were at Gilgal. So he presents the tribute, leaves, goes as far as the idols of Gilgal, and then comes back to kill the king. Wait a minute, idols at Gilgal? What, was, what were idols doing in Israel-held land in Gilgal? And then again, at the end of the assassination, after Ehud has killed Eglon, verse 26, now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols. The whole assassination episode is sandwiched, another one, by these idols before and after the assassination. What in the world were idols doing in Israelite territory? What were God's people doing with idols? lack of integrity. No wonder our story began in verse 12. Now the sons of Israel continued to do evil. And notice how our story ends before the next cycle of Judges begins. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the sons of Israel continued to do... It's the same word. Continued to do evil. It was as if they had never stopped. Same song, same verse, same chorus. No integrity. But there's one more indication of God's disapproval of those dark and dodgy and deceptive ways of Ehud, the leader without integrity. And that's in the little short cameo played by a new character called Shamgar in verse 31. After him, after him, that's Ehud, came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. This one verse note about Shamgar is a satire in a nutshell. This guy, it said, was a son of Anath, but Anath was a Canaanite goddess, the female consort, female counterpart of the Canaanite god Baal. So most likely our man Shamgar was a Canaanite who lived among the Israelites and intermarried with them and became one of them. And so this Gentile convert manages to win a war and save Israel from the Philistines. How about that? The other thing about Shamgar is even more remarkable is his weapon. An ox goad. 
a four to six foot wooden pole with a metal point at the end used to prod oxen. A strange weapon with which to do war, if you ask me. And notice what Shemgar accomplishes with it, verse 31. Struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. Struck down. The same verb was just used of the Israelites defeating the Moabites under Ehud in verse 29. They struck down at that time 10,000 Moabites. And this Shamgar single-handedly also strikes down 600 Philistines with an improvised weapon. The man is a Canaanite. He has no antecedents, no tribe, not even a proper weapon, totally unlike Ehud whose parentage and tribe and his intricate weapon manufacturing and dagger packing arrangements are given to us in detail in verses 15 and 16. But in contrast to this guy, look at what even a Gentile convert succeeded in doing. Ehud, we know, was a deliverer. Verse 15, the Lord raised up a deliverer. But look at what Shamgar did. Verse 31, struck down 600 Philistines with an ox cord. He also delivered. Ehud may have been a deliverer, but so also was Shamgar, a Gentile convert who didn't even have a proper weapon. And you know what? When you are a godly leader leading with integrity, you don't need no fancy footwork to be a deliverer. You don't need all the wily weaponry that Ehud used to accomplish God's purpose. We don't need treacherous tactics to succeed. Even Shamgar, even Shamgar, he of the ox goad fame was God's deliverer who was successfully used by God without having to undertake all the manipulations and machinations that the double-mouthed Ehud employed. So number three is decency. And by decency I mean integrity. No deception, no cheating, no fancy weapon, no devious strategizing, no cunning manipulation. All you need is God and an ox goad. Clearly, Shamgar is the positive foil for the negative Ehud. Shamgar is an ironic end to the Ehud story, to Ehud and his godless games and gear and his deceitful devices and dodges. Ehud was a judge who was marked by a lack of integrity, the first key essential for a leader. How about you and me? Is there a strange whiff about us? A willingness to sacrifice integrity when the going gets tough? An openness to giving up on integrity to accomplish our agendas and purposes? For God to work through us as leaders in our homes, schools, offices, society, nation, each of us in our own spheres must influence and lead in whatever capacity that might be by demonstrating integrity. We must lead with integrity. We have a choice. We can either be thermometer leaders who are influenced by the outside surroundings and simply echo what's happening on the outside as a thermometer does. The world cheats, we cheat. The world deceives, we deceive. The world has no integrity, we have no integrity. Thermometer leaders. But God calls us not to be thermometer leaders, but to be thermostat leaders who 
change the surroundings proactively influencing the world by our integrity we are the primary change the world in the world that god wants to bring about this is the first call of leaders to lead with integrity what can we do not to be like ehud what can we do to constantly remember our calling by god as leaders a calling that call, that requires of us to demonstrate integrity let me give you something small and trivial to do that will bring this constantly to mind summer is here and you know what it's going to be like it's going to be so hot farmers are going to feed their chickens crushed ice to keep them from laying hard-boiled eggs <laughs> so one appliance that you're going to be constantly tinkering with is your thermostat whether it be on your phone or the actual device on the wall here's what I want us to do every time you touch the thermostat I want these three words to go through your mind lead with integrity or just mutter it to yourself lead with integrity because you see God wants us to be thermostat leaders leading with integrity not a thermometer leader like Ehud simply reflecting the deviousness and lack of integrity shown by the world leaders that's you and I and especially fathers today leaders let's go change the world we will lead we will influence with integrity be a thermostat let's pray our father for your word that speaks powerfully to us across millennia across continents across oceans we give thanks because you are truth you want us to demonstrate truth and integrity in all of our undertakings thank you for reminding us that it is through demonstrations of integrity that we influence the world but we come before you confessing that we have failed in thought in word and in deed to do just that father even as we beseech your forgiveness in Christ we ask for your strength through your Holy Spirit strength so that we might be thermostats influencing a lost world for your sake leading a lost world in integrity influencing a lost world with integrity may we do that for your glory and for the furtherance of your son's kingdom and this we ask in Jesus name Amen